Let's read John chapter 1, verse 40 through 51 together. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He, that's Andrew, first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. This is God's word. Let's pray again. Jesus, we thank you that you have the words of life. This morning, would you feed and nourish our souls? Gosh, Lord, would you comfort us where we need comfort? Would you clarify things where we have questions or there's confusion? Lord, would you save this morning? Would you set free some of us who are stuck in um, just a wrong, like, self examination and discouragement and even this works-based thing, trying to clean ourselves up. Lord, save us from that. Would we see Jesus this morning? Would we see heaven opened? Would we behold the Son of God, the Lamb of God, minister to your people this morning through your mighty word? And it's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So again, as we began last week, we're seeing essential qualities of the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, Definitely listen to last week, there was four, and we have another three this morning. And just as a reminder, as our church is in a season of transition, as our three elders are praying about, okay, what does the Lord have for us moving forward? We said this last week, it's just such good news to know that the essentials have already been given to us in God's word. What is a church and what's a church to be about and what's the vision and the mission and the structure? God has already given us that in his word. And so this morning, we're gonna see three essential things that are for us this morning as a church. Uh, They're for any true faithful church of Jesus. And the the first essential quality is this. A church of Jesus will have an inability to keep Jesus to itself. An inability to keep Jesus to oneself. A church, a true church who has met with Jesus and has seen Jesus and has spent time with Jesus 
can't just meet every single Sunday, be like, oh, Jesus, you're good, we love you, and then just go for six days and never speak about Jesus and never share with Jesus and it never comes out of us and then we just do that week to week to week. That is not what a living church does. That is not what someone who is spending time with Jesus can do. We see it uh, first in verses 40 through 41. Remember, these two disciples just spent time with Jesus. They said, hey, where are you staying? Can we stay with you? They spent the whole afternoon and the whole evening. And we pick it up in verse 40, and it says this. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. The the NIV says that verse 41, the first thing Andrew did. What we are witnessing is when we commune with Jesus, it is the most natural thing in the world for that to overflow, for us to share in some way that, that we have met and found the person of Jesus. Uh, one word for that is evangelism, which means sharing the gospel, sharing the good news that though we were sinners, God came for us and he died on the cross and we have been forgiven and we will live forever with Jesus. That's the gospel. And evangelism is sharing the good news with others. We see this happen again a few verses down as Philip meets Jesus. Look at verse 45. Jesus meets, or Philip meets Jesus, and it says, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, if we were to be honest, uh, especially in our culture, evangelism is intimidating. We may feel, you know, like in our day and age, everything goes and anything goes except for something that says, no, this is true. Like, no, this is actually true. There's only one way to God, it's Jesus. And so it's a bit countercultural for us to share the true gospel, which says it's salvation is only through Jesus. And so we have uh, three observations about evangelism from our text that will just be encouragement and practical, you know, practical instruction for us to grow in our evangelism. And the first thing we see about evangelism here is this, evangelism, is usually best done in a relational way. Evangelism is usually relational. Again, in verse 41, the the first person Andrew goes to to share with is his brother, right? It's his brother. This is just the most natural thing. I want to share this amazing thing that I just discovered, Jesus, with the person closest to me. And that really is the most basic and important truth about evangelism that we would speak about Jesus to the people we already have relationships with. Our family members, our children, our parents, our roommates, our neighbors, and our coworkers. This is generally how God saves people. In fact, a quick survey. How many of you uh, would say, you know, I was saved when I heard a really good sermon? How many? Maybe a few of us? Like one, two, three, four, five? Six. Uh, how many of you would be like, I met Jesus because of a, a relationship. Someone in my life shared Jesus with me. How many of you would say that? I mean, look at that. It's amazing. This is the, the way God has orchestrates, you know, for people to hear about Jesus is almost always through relationships, almost always through relationships. 
Uh, the, the second encouragement for us in evangelism is this. Evangelism is usually through ordinary people, right? Again, it's not through these super gifted, you know, preachers or this amazing Christian celebrity who's on his TV show like, listen, you need to come to Jesus. It's generally through people like you and me, like Andrew and Philip. In the Gospel of John, this is so cool. We, we read about Andrew three times, only three times. And he is not casting out demons. He's not preaching sermons. He's not working miracles. The, all three of the times we read of Andrew, he's bringing someone to Jesus. That's what he does. He, listen, he's an ordinary man with an incredible privilege of bringing people to Jesus. And we don't read Andrew, you know, upset, like, why don't I get to have these gifts? Or I, why don't I get to write books of the Bible? He is happy to bring people to Jesus. And, and this, is, this is cool. The, the first person he brought to Jesus was an incredibly gifted and used of God person. It was his brother, Peter. And that's an encouraging lesson for us. We, we should not underestimate how God may use us in just simply bringing a friend or a family member to Christ. You know, sometimes uh, maybe we want the glory. We want to be used by God in these amazing ways, but maybe he just would use you to save someone who he's going to use in amazing ways. And are we content with that? Because that is the way Jesus builds his kingdom. Uh, I read this story this week. Uh, 500 years ago, the Protestant Reformation was just beginning in Europe, and there was this short English monk named Little Billney. And he wasn't educated and he stuttered and he was insecure and he wasn't good with people. And he got his hands on these writings by another monk named Martin Luther. And he read about the saving blood of Jesus that alone takes away our sin and that alone makes us right with God. And this little monk named Little Billney was saved. He was born again. Now he's so excited and he's like, how can I share the gospel? I can't even speak. I'm insecure. I don't know what to do. And, you know, really the only person in his life that he even like interacted with was his priest. And so he was like, do you know what? I'm going to pray for my priest because my priest was, it was an, he was an incredibly gifted, educated man. And he's like, man, if God could save this priest. And, and so he's just trying to think about how he's going to share the gospel with this priest. And the, the thing, this, the way he comes up with is, okay, I'll go into the confessional and I'll confess my sins. And then I'll just out loud start praying to Jesus and, and thank him for shedding his blood on the cross for my sins. And only the blood of Jesus is my righteousness and not my own works. And so he goes and he does this and he's just stuttering through his prayer. And God opens the eyes of this priest and he is saved. And this man, this priest was named Hugh Latimer and he became one of the foremost leaders in England in the Protestant Reformation. And it was him and another minister, they were just preaching the gospel. They were arrested under, uh, you may maybe heard of the queen, Bloody Mary. This was a Catholic queen and she arrested all of these different priests and people who were preaching the gospel. And uh, she condemned this man and another minister to be publicly burned at the stake. And so God used this, this priest in so many ways and he's standing there next to his friend tied up to wooden stakes and as the fires are being lit, he famously said, these words are, are now famous, he said to his other minister, Nicholas Ridley, he said this, 
Play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. And God used this ministry and him literally being burnt alive to just spread the good news of Jesus. And that happened through an ordinary man who was just praying for his priest. We see the same pattern in Andrew. He was just happy to bring his brother to Jesus. And little did he know how Jesus would radically use Peter to lead the early church. You know, another thing that comes up in evangelism is, well, what if I'm not like a Bible expert or like, I don't, you know, know how to answer all the questions or what if they ask me something that I don't know, you know, and then I just ruin the gospel, right? Uh, We see another ordinary man in, in Philip. He goes and he tells Nathaniel, hey, we found Jesus. And Commentators uh, comically point out that he's actually wrong in a couple important details about Jesus. He says Jesus was the son of Joseph, and he says Jesus was from Nazareth, which we know he, he wasn't born from Joseph, and he was from Bethlehem. And so Nathaniel has these questions, and he's like, what? What do you mean? Like, I thought the Messiah is from Bethlehem. What do you mean from Nazareth? And he, so Philip just stumbles along, and then Nathaniel asks him questions, and you know what Philip's response is? He's like, I don't know, just come, come and see. That's what he does. I can't answer your questions. I just met him, just come and see. And God uses that humble, even wrong, like imperfect evangelism to save another apostle. Uh, another pastor commentator wrote this of Philip's imperfect evangelism. This is so good. Would it not be better to stammer ridiculously like Philip and to hold by the true Christ then by eloquent, ingenious language and introduce a false one. As long as we know Jesus and have been saved by Jesus, he can use us. And if all we can say is, hey, you need Jesus, come to church with me. That's all I got for you. Like he can use us. He doesn't need us to be well-trained and well-educated. Evangelism is generally through ordinary people such as you and me. The third thing uh, uh, that we get encouragement in evangelism is this. Evangelism is not a formula. Even in chapter one, we see disciples made through the preaching of John the Baptist. We see it made through the evangelism of a brother to a brother, a friend to a friend. And we even see Jesus directly going to an unbeliever and saving him. And it's just important to know that God saves people through all kinds of means. It's important that we don't compare ourselves to that evangelist or the way that person got saved. If we could have the time to share testimonies, they would be so different. God saves us in many different ways but always through the person of Jesus. And what matters most is that we have come to know Jesus and love Jesus and spend time with Jesus and just simply bring people to him, simply speak to others of Jesus. And so the church is always marked by this evangelism, this organic, like, I just have to let people know about Jesus. The next essential quality of the church is this, genuine transformation, genuine transformation. Uh, You know, nicknames 
are usually given because of like, a, like an inside joke, right? Or like a past memory, like this funny thing happened and then a nickname comes from it. Uh, what we actually see Jesus do here to Peter is, is quite the opposite. Look at verse 42 in Jesus' interaction with Peter. It says, Andrew, he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John, but you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now, that word Peter means rock. Okay, now listen, if you've, if you've ever read anything about Peter, you know that is like the, the most comically opposite name you could have given him. He is unsteady, unstable, impulsive. He denies Jesus in the most essential moment where Jesus needed a friend. Simon was not a rock. He was not a rock. And yet he meets Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm gonna make you into a rock. I'm gonna name you right now. You shall be a rock. This will happen. And through his relationship with Jesus and the years he spends with Jesus, Simon Peter is, is genuinely transformed into a man who would be used as a rock, as a foundation stone in the church of Jesus Christ. He takes, Jesus's church is always full of Peter's in process. People like you and me who still struggle between our old identities and our old temptations and the new person Jesus is transforming us to be. Jesus never starts with someone who has their acts together. He's not like it was in junior high when teams are being picked, right? And you're standing there and he's like, I think I want that person because, you know, they're really gifted. No, he picks people like Simon and then he makes them into rocks. That is the story of every true Christian. And there's, there's two ways we see transformation happening in these verses here. And, and the first way we see Jesus transforming his disciples is, is his command to follow him. This is really important. Jesus transforms us as we follow him. Look at verse 37. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Again, in verse 43, the next day, Jesus said, or decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, the German uh, pastor, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you maybe heard, heard him say this before. He says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Every person in every culture who decides to follow Jesus will be called to change, to give up sin, to obey Jesus rather than their natural desires and wishes. Listen, to follow Jesus is not to say, hey, Jesus, come on, follow me. Come on, let's go. I just, you know, just come with me. Just bless, you know, the things that I'm doing. Just come follow me, Jesus. <laughs> no, to follow Jesus is to die to yourself to leave your old life, your old loves, to go where he goes and to do what he says to do. For Bonhoeffer in World War II in Nazi Germany, it, it cost him his life. 
For Christians in the Middle East, it may mean isolation from their family and even death. For Christians in Africa, it means you don't call the witch doctor when your child is sick. For Christians in China right now, it has meant I'm going to worship the true God even if they take away our church building, even if they demolish it with us inside it. And this sounds rather extreme, right, to the American ear. Like, wow, that's kind of extreme. Like, I just, yeah, I believe in Jesus, right? Like, no, no, even Americans must die to themselves to follow Jesus. We do not remain consumers where we pick and choose the church that we like best at the moment. That's, we don't, we don't, listen, listen, following Jesus isn't picking and choosing the teachers that will tell us what we want to hear. That's not following Jesus. That's following your heart. Listen, to be an American Christian means that I can't be this autonomous, authority-resisting person where I decide what commandments in the Bible I will obey and what commandments I won't obey. We follow Jesus and what he says actually goes. If you aren't doing that, you're not following Jesus. You're not following the real, true Jesus of the Bible. Every follower of Jesus is called to pick up their cross and follow him and obey him, to be conformed to Christ, not to our culture and not to our desires. And so that's the first way we see Jesus transform his church. But may I say even more significant, we, we cannot forget the fact that it is God himself who transforms us. The power of genuine change does not lie with you and your willpower and your obedience, but with his spirit and with his life-changing word. You must be born again. You must have a new heart, a new heart that has new desires, that genuinely longs to be with Jesus and genuinely loves to hear the commandments, even the hard ones. Listen, God alone can transform us. God alone, or it's not real, genuine, true transformation. And so we see, even as Jesus tells Peter, he, he doesn't say, you may be called Peter if you, you know, do a good job. He says, you shall be called Peter. I'm going to make you into a rock. God says the same thing to every person who comes to him. We will be transformed. Look, look at one way Paul says it in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Look what he says here. This is like the culmination of, of our salvation. It says, we are his workmanship. Created, created. We don't create ourselves. We've been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There, there's this amazing like interplay that we walk in these good works, but we've been created by him. We're his workmanship. They've been prepared beforehand by God. And so we certainly obey. We must obey. You cannot not obey and be a true follower of Jesus, but God himself is working that desire to obey in your heart. The Bible says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, but it is not you who work, it's, it's God working in you. 
And so this is this amazing way Jesus transforms us. He says, obey me, but only those who have been born again can truly obey me. Uh, there's this story of the great artist, Michelangelo, and he's beginning a new sculpture and it's just this big chunk of rock and he's just starting to chip away on it and someone says, what are you doing? And he says, I'm releasing the angel imprisoned in this marble. It's important we remember we aren't the ones chiseling away on our own spiritual life. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus And we will certainly begin to bear fruit and have good works and we'll walk in those things. But but underneath this change is a supernatural work of God. And if, if you have come to Jesus, rest assured, he will transform you. It's Philippians 1, 6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. This isn't up for grabs. He is, in fact, I want you to see one more verse, uh, Romans chapter eight, verse 30. And the point of this verse is that from the beginning to the end, God is saving you. Look, this is so good. I think we have, it's one back, Reynolds, sorry, yeah. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. People call that like the golden chain. Like you can't break a link in there. He's going to get it done. He will transform his people. The third and most important truth, though, the third and most essential mark, quality of the true church is this. And we actually looked at it last week, and we have way more to look at this week. It's this. It's proper knowledge of Jesus Christ. This is so fascinating. It's not what we need to do. It's not how we need to be built. The most essential thing about us is Jesus and knowing who he really is. Not who we think he is or what we want him to be, but proper, true, revealed knowledge of Jesus. Uh, in, in, the, in our verses, there's six things about Jesus we're gonna see. I'm gonna work through them really quickly and I'm just gonna develop just the one that Jesus himself develops. Uh, the, the first we see in our text is found in verse 45. And it's this, Jesus is the sum and substance of the Old Testament. Look at verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. It's it's a strange, weird thing that people say, we don't need the Old Testament or it's all done. Jesus is like, listen, if you want to get to know me, read the Old Testament. You will get to know me. He is the fulfillment of the whole book. The second thing we see about Jesus is found in verses 47 and 48, and it's this. Jesus is eternal. Jesus is eternal. Look at verses 47 and 48. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Jesus is saying, I saw you before this meeting. And in fact, we know Jesus saw Nathanael before Nathanael was even born because Jesus created Nathanael. Jesus is God. He makes a similar statement later in John chapter eight, verse 58. He says, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is Yahweh, eternal. He is God. 
And just the simple, tiny, like flash of his supernatural knowledge, it just undid Nathaniel. He's like, you are God. You are the son of God. And he goes on to proclaim two truths about Jesus in verse 49. Look what he says. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And so the third thing we see is Jesus is the son of God. He's the second member of the Trinity, Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. As John 1, 1 tells us, Jesus is with God and he is God. This is just a mind-bending truth. God has someone with him, but it's God. God is with God. It's this mind-bending thing. Jesus is the Son of God. The, the, the next thing Nathaniel says, it's the fourth thing about Jesus. Jesus is the King of Israel, He's recognizing that standing before him is, is the one who will sit on David's throne forever. Like this is the king of Israel. This is the king of kings. And so Nathaniel's just losing his mind over who Jesus is. And yet Jesus knows these guys don't know anything about me. Like they've maybe seen a little cool, few cool moments here and there. They spent a few hours with me, but I love his response in verse 50. Look what he says. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? She's like, you like, you think that's impressive? I saw you under the fig tree. He says, you will see greater things than these. And we, we said this last week, when you follow Jesus, he only gets greater and greater and greater. And for all eternity, as we are with Jesus, he will never cease to become greater to us. He is infinitely great. And then Jesus says, you know, he's like, you, you don't even know what you're talking about. So he's like, let me tell you a little something about me. And so he goes on to explain something in verse 51. He's like, you want to know something about me? And he, he, look at this verse. He says, and he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. And it's fascinating at that moment when he says you, that's actually, it will likely say it in your Bible, that word you becomes plural. It's like he's having a conversation with Nathaniel and then he kind of like takes a step back and he's like, hey guys. And then he addresses his disciples. He addresses us, the church. And he says something that I can almost guarantee you they were just like, they're losing their minds and then they're just like, what is, what is, he, what is he saying? He, and Jesus often does this. He, he even makes himself a little hard to understand because he knows those who truly love him and long to understand will come and dig in. What are you saying, Jesus? And so he says, you're gonna see heaven opened and you're gonna see angels come, going up and down on the son of man. Now, what is Jesus getting at? If they were familiar with the Old Testament, they maybe, and maybe you are remembering, that sounds familiar. Uh, and I want us to see Jesus is referring to something in the Old Testament. Turn with me to Genesis 28. And I want us to develop this a bit to see what it is Jesus is really saying because this is, this, is, this is really good for us this morning. Genesis 28, this is the story of Jacob who just cheated his twin brother out of his, his older twin brother out of his inheritance. 
and his brother's furious and he knows his brother wants to kill him. And so Jacob's on the run. He's fled home and he's on his way to a relative and he just is camping one night and he lays down and he has this dream at the pretty much the lowest moment of his life. He just did the most evil thing he's ever done. His brother wants to kill him. His dad's upset at him. He's all alone. In Genesis 28, we'll read verses, uh, let's start at verse 10 and we'll read to 17. Jacob left Beersheba, that's a place, and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. Now in Jacob's day, there were these, you know, that word ladder could also mean staircase because you couldn't quite translate it right. And in Jacob's day, uh, temples often had a staircase like built into them. If you can picture, let's picture like an a- ancient temple. They would have these staircases, often towers. For example, the Tower of Babel had like a staircase around it going up to heaven. And if you remember what the people of Babel said, they said, they said, let us build for ourselves a tower with its top in the heavens. This is profound because people have always sought to reach heaven by our own strength and our own goodness and our own achievements and our own ingenuity. Let us make a name for ourselves. This is a, a picture of worshiping oneself. Through my effort, I will reach to heaven. And, and listen, this thought is around today. Not just in every other religion. Listen, this thought sneaks into the church as if spiritual growth is going from one stair of maturity to the next. And the higher you climb and the more you sacrifice and the more you fast and the more you give your money away, your time away, you're going up this ladder and God is getting more proud of you. And now you can look at yourself and think how I've grown, how I've reached myself up into the heavens. It's important to know that this issue, this idea is actually what sparked the Protestant Reformation. That the Roman Catholic Church, which has not changed what it teaches, says, do you know what? Jesus is like the ladder. 
And he'll provide a way for you to climb your way up to heaven. He's the new ladder. And you know, you just do this and you just do that. And you put, pay a little money here. You put a little money there. And you go visit this place. And you go, there were even stairs in Rome that if you walked up on your knees, you would get righteousness credited to your account. This idea is still around, even in the minds and hearts of Christians. Spiritual growth is me climbing Jesus, working harder. And is that what Jesus is saying? I'm the new ladder, so get to work. Start climbing, start trying. Is that what he's saying here? No, that's, that, there's two clues in the text. That's the old view, but there's something different about this ladder. And I want us to notice two things in the text. And I, I want you to see it for yourself. So go back to John 1. There's two clues here that we can understand. What is Jesus saying about himself? The first clue he gives us is this. He says in verse 51, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened. You will see heaven opened. Now, throughout the Bible, that is an expression of God's favor. Heaven opened. We see it in Jacob's story. It says, heaven, the heavens were opened. And what happened when the heavens were opened? God promised to bless Jacob and to fulfill the promise he made to Abraham and to Isaac. And was this because Jacob had done such a good job and was such a righteous man that now he was receiving this blessing? No, it was at the moment of his utter worst sin and rebellion that heaven opened and he received grace. We see again the phrase, the heavens were opened when Jesus is baptized. Remember that? Jesus gets baptized and it says, the heavens were opened and the spirit descended on him like a dove. And then it says, the father blesses him and says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Last, we see it when Stephen, the first Christian martyr, is being killed in Acts chapter 7. And it says, he saw heaven opened. And he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. You see, Jesus is telling us that through him, God the Father is pronouncing a blessing. A blessing of grace on people. And the second clue is this. Who is it that climbs the ladder? Does Jesus say you will see heaven open and there will be this ladder and now you can climb your way to heaven? No, it says the angels are ascending and descending. What it's saying is heaven itself is ascending and descending. Heaven is opened and heaven has come down. That is the gospel. The gospel is not, Jesus has provided an opportunity for you to work hard and climb to heaven. If you could hear anything this morning, hear this. The gospel is we are sinners like Jacob who deserve God's wrath. And yet Jesus has opened heaven and has himself come down, lived a perfect life, took our place, our substitutionary atonement on the cross, died and rose again. And if anyone would trust in him, the Bible says you will be saved and seated with Christ on high. And right now, 
If you have put your trust in Jesus, Ephesians 1.20 says, you are seated in heaven already. That is the gospel. Not that you get yourself there, but that when you trust in Jesus, when you are in Jesus, he is your connection to heaven and you are seated with him. And he looks at you and says, this is my beloved son and daughter with whom I am well pleased. Please, Christianity is not another form of spiritual ladder climbing. That is not good news. That's exhausting news. That is exactly what Jesus came to rescue us from, that he would open heaven and give us grace. And so the most essential thing you can do every day is to look to Jesus, who is your righteousness, who is your connection to heaven and the Father's blessing. And when you sin this afternoon and tomorrow and the next day, don't think, okay, I gotta start climbing again. I gotta get my act together. Do you know what you do? You look to Jesus, who already did the work for you, who justified you, and who now in you is changing your heart and your desires to long to be more like him. And Jesus ends this passage with a phrase that we're going to close with. He says, the angels of God are ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And I want us to close our time together. I just want to read a passage that Jesus is referring to out of Daniel chapter 7. So I'm going to find that. Daniel 7 verse 9. This is the last truth Jesus reveals about himself. We'll read this and then we will worship. The last thing to know is Jesus is the son of man. And this comes from Daniel 7. We'll read from verse 9 to 14. Daniel saw this vision and he says, As I looked, thrones were placed. And the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. And the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus, there is no one like you. You are the son of man. You are the true ladder that connects heaven and earth. You are the king of Israel. You are the son of God. 
You are our Messiah, Jesus. You are worthy. You are God himself. And Lord, we believe, as your word has told us, that what your people need most is you, is your presence, is true understanding of who this Jesus Christ really is. And if we could stay here for a whole week and sit down and hear the burdens and problems and sins that we are each struggling with, there would be one solution, the person Jesus Christ. No other person, no other name, no other power. So Holy Spirit, would you help your people to see Jesus this morning? Lord, would we come to you If this is the first time we've never really come to you, would would you draw us? And if this is the hundred thousandth time, would you draw us again? Jesus, you are our hope and our righteousness. Our salvation is found in you. You are our rock and our refuge, our ever-present help in time of need. Would we behold you together, Jesus? Would we take of communion, your body and blood are symbolized. You were broken. Your blood was poured out for our sin. And if we trust in you, that we receive your righteousness and we are now seated in heaven. So Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would help us together be caught up with the person of Jesus. That we would worship Christ and exalt Christ. Hunger and thirst for more of Christ. As we wake up tomorrow morning, Holy Spirit, help us hunger and thirst for more of Jesus. And Lord, as we commune with you just now and and tomorrow and the next day, would your spirit then just overflow as we, we long for others to know of Jesus. And would you use us, like Andrew, would you use us to bring other people to you, Jesus, that, that they would be saved and satisfied, seated in heaven with you. So now we come and we worship you, King Jesus. You are worthy and worthy to be praised.